Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Kirsten Tynan, thank you so much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. In the past, the jury really did reflect the philosophy of the country. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we recently had um, a discussion on three different essays by Spooner. Um, An essay on the trial by jury is the one most people associate with jury nullification. Shortly before that, I don't even think it was two years before that, he had written an argument called uh, Illegality of the Trial of John W. Webster, in which he, he seems to be pre-developing some of the ideas that he brought forth in an essay on the trial by jury. And then uh, much later, about two decades later, he wrote something that doesn't specifically refer to juries, but is sort of related called vices are not crimes, which kind of identifies the difference between like now, basically anything that is against the law is considered a crime. But in truth, a crime has to be something that hurts someone else or their property or violates their rights in some way. It's not just something that other people find distasteful or annoying, which that that might a vice might be something that hurts you. Maybe uh, eating too much junk food hurts you personally, but it's not a crime in the sense that it's not affecting someone else by violating their rights or harming them personally or their property or things like that. It's kind of interesting uh, because he does talk, uh, Spooner does talk a lot about the jury representing the country. And if you if you look at through history, that situation has both improved and degraded in different ways. <laughs> improved because obviously in Spooner's time, uh, he w- came from a very abolitionist family. During slavery, obviously, Black people, for instance, weren't allowed on juries. Uh, women were not allowed on juries. How much it represented the country was quite limited in that sense. So expanding the jury to include pretty much all of us at this point, um, with a few exceptions, but far fewer exceptions than at that time, was a big improvement in the jury um, really being said to represent the country. On the other hand, we now have juries that are screened much more heavily than they were back in the day. It used to be that it was not quite a random selection, but the reasons you could have someone taken off a jury were pretty limited. Or I should say the reasons the government could have someone taken off the jury were pretty limited. Um, There are two ways to get rid of someone from a jury before the trial gets going. There are challenges for cause and there are peremptory challenges. Challenges for cause mean that there is some inherent reason the person can't be a fair and impartial juror, maybe 
they're the brother of the cop who arrested the accused. That would be a good reason. There's a cause there. Um, perhaps they um, have some sort of uh, disease that doesn't allow them to stay awake for more than 10 minutes at a time. There's a good reason they probably can't sit through a week-long trial and get all the information they need, that sort of thing. So those are challenges for cause. However, peremptory challenges, um, in most places, there is now an exception, but in most places, um, each side gets a certain number of peremptory challenges, which they can use for almost any reason. You cannot legally use a peremptory challenge to kick someone off the jury because of their race or because of their sex. But say you think that, oh, I'm getting kind of a vibe that that person doesn't like my, you know, me, the attorney. We're not developing a good rapport. I've said something that I thought was funny and maybe they got offended by, you know, there's just kind of subtle reasons that you can't necessarily put your finger on. Each side usually gets a certain number to kick those people off. Well, it used to be, if you look in Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England back in the day, (laughs) it used to be that all peremptory challenges were reserved for the defense. The Crown was not allowed any peremptory challenges. And how many did the defense get? The defense got 35 peremptory challenges. How did they come up with this number? Well, as Blackstone pointed out, it was one short of three full juries. And the theory was that if you rejected three full juries worth of people, the only reason you would do that is because you had no intention of being tried at all. You were just going to reject people on and on indefinitely and so that you couldn't be tried. And so that was unacceptable. But it was such that, you know, basically you as the accused could not say you didn't get a fair jury because you got to reject so many people without having to give a reason that clearly you could have gotten a jury that was fair to you. Not so anymore. Now, uh, if there are peremptory challenges, they are either pretty evenly uh, divided between prosecution and defense, or if there are multiple defense defendants in one trial, the prosecutor will get more um, uh, per person than the defendants. So for instance, the prosecutor might get 10 and each of the defendants might get four. So the whole defense team gets 12 peremptory challenges, but each defendant only gets four versus the prosecutor's 10. So it's basically been skewed to the opposite of what it was meant to be. Um, So, and also reasons to get rid of someone have expanded greatly. um, And that has also fallen to the benefit of the prosecution. If you look at capital cases, this was actually true in Spooner's day and is something he pointed out in illegality of the trial of John W. Webster. But in capital cases, if you basically don't don't agree that you could send someone to death or put someone uh, uh, sentence someone to death, then you won't be on the jury. So that automatically excludes a lot of people of faith. Um, Quakers, Catholics, uh, for example, uh, are either universally or heavily skewed toward that. Um, it excludes a lot of women, a lot of people of color. So there, it disproportionately skews the jury not only to be more likely to sentence someone to death, but also to be more likely to convict in the first place because you are taking out a segment of people who have a, an, uh, you can't really define the way uh, that group of people thinks, but they have a disproportionate um, 
disproportionately skewed uh, way of looking at things and way of making decisions that means that those who are left are more likely to convict in the first place. So we have this strange situation where the most serious cases with the most final uh, punishment on the line essentially have a lower standard of justice. So Kirsten Tynan, let's talk about, I mean, that you've raised some very interesting things. I mean, obviously we expect things to change over time. I mean, that's that's a natural occurrence. But when you look at what's happened to the jury system, uh, I think that jurors have to start getting a little more inventive about how um, how they deal with situations that where, ju- where jury nullification really would be an important thing to invoke. So I was thinking about that the other day, and here the judge gives his rules. He said, Here's, here are the rules, and you got to follow the rules. Well, you're sitting on the jury, and you're thinking, something ain't right here. Um, I was thinking, what about some mechanism? What can jurors do to nullify or to be an independent juror in the face of that, something like a pocket veto that a president can do, or some way to to go ahead and nullify and be independent uh, and go against what the judge says. How do how do you do that? Well, we have a lot of training that we have developed in the last couple of years, and that is an ongoing project because there is a definite problem that um, if during jury selection, one of the ways they get rid of people is to figure out who's likely to nullify and then get rid of them. Well, that it doesn't do anyone any good for us to tell more people about jury nullification. (laughs) So the first thing I would say is anyone who is called for jury duty, I would say go to FIJA.org slash jury duty. And that is our guide for jury duty for fully informed prospective jurors. And that includes things like some sample questions that you might be asked during voir dire. It's not for you to memorize the questions and answers, but just as you go through the exercise, you'll get a feel for how you can answer things truthfully, but more neutrally than you might be inclined to do on your own. (laughs) Um, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, but it is my observation that you can get into serious legal trouble for lying during jury selection if you're caught. And um, you will find that is it's more common for people to get in trouble for that in high profile cases or high stakes cases where there is a whole team of people checking into the jurors. Um, so that is something I would be careful about. But you can answer questions much more neutrally than you might at first be inclined to do. So we go through a number of different types of questions, questions on um, jury, uh, the purpose of the jury or how the jury operates kind of thing, questions that are aiming to find out if you're going to nullify because the case is about a particular issue or whatnot, and give you sort of questions that might be delve, digging into. Uh, things that that are are going to help the prosecutor decide to get rid of you that maybe you don't have to answer in a way that tips your hand. (laughs) Once you get into um, deliberations, as was mentioned earlier, you can't be punished for your verdict or for the way you vote, 
but you can be removed from the jury before a verdict is rendered if one of your fellow jurors squeals on you and says, hey, this person was in there talking about jury nullification, or this person was saying they weren't going to follow the judge's instructions. So you have to be a little bit more subtle in most cases. Um, So in that jury duty guide, we have some comments on, you know, how you can participate, but also stick to your conscientious vote. If you are considered to not be participating, if you if you just refuse to listen to anyone else, refuse to have any, you know, any sort of discussion that can get you removed from the jury as well. So what I recommend is, you know, engage in discussion, ask questions. That's being involved in the discussion. You can um, give your thoughts on if you have any reason to think that there is reasonable doubt in this case, even if it sounds kind of silly to you, (laughs) mention it because you cannot legally be removed because you doubt that the person is guilty. So if you have any chance to mention you have doubts about the person being guilty, mention it. That will be helpful if it comes time for um, you to be answering questions because someone has squealed on you and says that, you know, you're not participating or that you're going to vote not guilty for a wrong reason. They can't ask a whole lot necessarily, but they can ask some questions. So um, I do suggest that if you are considering nullifying A, don't use that word. B, don't bring up the punishment if you feel like other people aren't already thinking along the same lines as you. Um, Don't talk about ignoring what the judge says or whatever. Just keep your conversation general. You can say, in my heart, I I can't find this person guilty. Just general stuff like that. (laughs) Little platitudes and feel good sayings. Um, But but, you know, actively listen to other people, ask questions, be involved. Just don't don't tip your hand. Now, you yourself cannot bring about a not guilty verdict if other people agree disagree with you. But you can at least hang the jury. Uh, and that is, again, back to the jury instructions. Judges will often um, say or suggest that it's best for everyone if the jury delivers a verdict that day. That is not true for the defendant. That is an absolute lie. It is absolutely there to help the prosecution. And that is not surprising given that the vast majority of judges are former prosecutors. Um, but they'll basically suggest, let's say you, you, you cannot come to an agreement with the rest of the jury. You report to the judge that you're deadlocked. What's going to happen next? Usually they will not just accept that right off the bat. They will give what is known um, most commonly as an Allen charge, but it can be called other things in different states. Allen was the name of the case that it was based on. Uh, You might also hear it called the dynamite charge. But basically, the judge gives an additional instruction telling jurors, go back and try again. And although there's a like a token bit of language about how, you know, you should vote what you conscientiously believe, there's a lot of bullying language that suggests that you're wasting taxpayer money if you can't agree, that no other jury is going to be able to agree if you can't agree, that you should try harder, you know, all this stuff. And again, with the language saying that, you know, it's best, it's best for everyone if you could come to a decision. It's best for the government if you could come to a decision, not necessarily the defense. 
if you can't agree or if you if you don't feel like that person deserves um, to be punished, stick to your vote. I have had a number of people take a quiz on our website about jury rights and far most often the question that people get wrong is so many people, more than a third of people who respond are under the impression that the jury has to deliver a guilty or not guilty verdict on each charge. Not true at all. If you can't come to a verdict, that is okay. You can report that you're deadlocked. The judge can say, go back and try again. I am not aware of any legal limit on the number of times the judge can do that, but it will eventually come to an end if you stick to your your vote. Um, And what happens in that case? The defendant does not get off the hook, but they do have some advantages in a number of ways. Number one, they are not immediately going to be punished. So it's a much better position to defend yourself when you're not already considered guilty, because once you have been found guilty, uh, if you appeal, you no longer have the presumption of innocence on your side. You're now presumed guilty. So a lot of people um, who have told me, oh, well, no one, I couldn't get everyone else to agree with me. So I changed my mind. He can appeal anyway. It's like, No, that's not very helpful because now he's appealing from a position of I'm considered guilty to start, not I'm considered not guilty to start. Um, Second, they they may get another trial, in which case they have at least seen the prosecution's playbook. A lot of times the defense is not as prepared as it should be because when the prosecution, the prosecution is required to turn over what's called discovery. That is information that could suggest that the defendant is not guilty, but they will selectively decide what to turn over themselves, or they will deluge the defense with a huge amount of information, much of which has nothing to do with anything so that the evidence that they need to prove their innocence or to to support their innocence is buried in a pile of other stuff. And they will often do it maybe a couple of days, maybe a week or so before the trial begins. So the prosecution can sit on it for months and months and months and then turn it over at the last minute. Well, if they get another trial, now they have some time to go through this discovery. They can figure out if anything's missing that should have been turned over. Uh, they can see how the the prosecute they've seen in this trial, how the prosecution was going to use it, et cetera. So they have a better uh, place to be um, arguing from in a future trial. And best of all, they may not even need another trial. It may be that the prosecution decides it's not worth it to go through the whole thing again and offer a far better plea bargain than they were offered to begin with, if they were even offered one at all. Or as we've seen in medical cannabis cases in San Diego, for instance, the prosecution may just be like, this is just too humiliating. I'm not the prosecutor in the situation I'm thinking of um, was running for reelection <laughs> and it was not going to look good if there were you know, more trials that were hung, hung juries kind of thing. And there was even one case uh, in that situation in which the jury deadlocked eight to four. The judge will typically ask, you know, what not necessarily Eight, eight guilty or not guilty and four guilty or not guilty, but like, what's the split to see, oh, if it's just one holdout, maybe pressure is going to help them get over the hump. But if it's like a six to six split, maybe we just all go home. It's not even worth it. 
Well, in this particular case, um, I believe it was two people who had serious um, terminal illnesses who were using cannabis. And um, the jury deadlocked eight to four. And the judge said, you know, in the interest of justice, I'm just not going to permit this to be retried. So <laughs> a hung jury works out much better for the accused than being convicted. Um, and so I would definitely say stick to your vote if that's if that's what you think is just. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything going to be all right this morning. <laughs>